Hello, and welcome to Pull Quotes. I'm Emily Pardo. And I'm Laura Howells. It's now cliche to say the floodgates have opened, but the last two months have been pretty incredible. Since the New York Times investigation into Harvey Weinstein, we've seen story after story of sexual misconduct. And one by one, powerful men have toppled like dominoes. Millions of women shared their stories online about sexual harassment and abuse, and it started a mass conversation about power, sexual violence, and workplace culture. But as we move into the new year, what's next? This all seemed to start with great journalism. So what role should journalists play in moving this movement forward? This week, we're so glad to be speaking with two journalists about these questions. Anne Kingston is a senior writer at McLean's who covers contemporary culture. She covered the Jean Gomeshi trial back in 2016. And Hannah Sung is a video producer at The Globe and Mail. She co-hosted The Globe's Color Code podcast and recently worked on The Globe's After Me Too symposium in Toronto, which brought people together for two days to talk about combating sexual harassment in the entertainment industry. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Great to be here. So just this week, Time magazine named the Silence Breakers their person of the year. Time said that the actions of these hundreds of people who've spoken up about sexual assault and harassment have, quote, unleashed one of the highest velocity shifts in our culture since the 1960s. And do you agree? I mean... Are we really seeing a momentous cultural shift right now? Well, it's difficult to um, articulate a shift when you're in the middle of it. I think we want to see, we're feeling this ground swell. But I think, I mean, going to your original point about what journalists should be doing is we should be contextualizing a little bit. And in this regard, yes, I mean, we are seeing economic ramifications of, of, you know, sort of accusations being, you know, filtered into the reality of men, as they say, toppling from their jobs. But we're recording this minutes after Al Franken has resigned. So yes, consequences. But in the larger scheme of things, we're not seeing a lot of movement. The president and, you know, a man who is running for Senate has been accused of pedophilia and no movement there. So I don't feel that I think it's a bit premature to talk about a societal shift at this stage. Yeah, I would agree. It's very difficult to see a shift while you're in it. But I will say that um, yesterday I was struck by the Minister of Justice's speech at our After Me Too event. Um, Jody Wilson-Raybould told uh, a personal story that she's told before, but I've never heard her say uh, in person. And she's telling the story about how her father, an Indigenous leader, was... um, speaking with uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau at um, a kind of conference. And and um, Bill Wilson, Jody Wilson-Raybould's father, said, you know, I have two daughters and they, um, they have it in their head that they want to be lawyers. And uh, can you believe they want to be prime minister? And the whole room, as you can imagine, maybe during that era was mainly white and, and it, that got a chuckle. And then it started to become laughter. And the idea that, you know, a father speaking lovingly about his daughters um, and their dreams could be laughed at. Um, To me, I mean, I was so moved by that story because it was in the early 80s, um, obviously deeply racist and sexist in that moment. And you think about all the change that has happened, like, my God, she's our country's attorney general. So 
clearly there has been a shift. Um, culture is always shifting. And I think in that regard, this amazing positive shift has happened. But you do see how long it takes. It takes lifetimes. Yeah. I mean, right now, the sort of wash of stories that we've seen coming out of the last few months have really focused on individual people um, being brought down. And a lot of these people are, you know, white, famous, privileged people. And this doesn't, as you were saying, and like, it doesn't necessarily mean there's any kind of structural change going on. So I mean, what's the role of journalism in sort of moving that conversation forward? Where should we be putting our journalistic resources if we want to kind of move the conversation? Well, I think we have to see the size of the problem to begin with. And I think you're absolutely right talking about systemic issues. For instance, I mean, the story Hannah tells is a really touching one and an important one in terms of recognizing, you know, how long these shifts positive shifts take. However, I mean, let's let's look specifically at um, the the Justice Minister and the Trudeau government. I mean, what journalists should be doing? Yes, celebrating the progress that's been made, but at the same time, also calling government into you know account. For instance, the government voted against whistleblower protection legislation, which would have been vital in you know for people coming forward with these sorts of claims. I mean, yes, we've seen the high-profile um, cases, but. Consider that these are privileged people, in a sense, that are coming forward. Think about how much more difficult it is for salaried employees or others. So I think what journalism has to do is identify just the problems that exist on that level, but also sort of on a broader scale. Talk about what's what the government should be doing in terms of spending for violence against women, for instance, identifying, you know, not not simply working as PR agents for, you know, sort of messaging for various agencies, but calling them into account. So I think that's really, really important that at this moment we're sort of buoyed with optimism, but at the same time we have to be almost even more hypercritical not to get sucked up into it. Hmm. And I mean, there's also the question of, like how long this moment will actually last. There's so many allegations coming forward and it seems like every day, you know, there's a new story. But, I mean, we're coming up on Christmas. The new cycle inevitably dies down. <laughs> we'll be bored. <laughs> Something new. I mean, how long do you think this moment is going to last and if it does? That's a great question. Um, I think it depends on the public pressure. And uh, as you mentioned, you know, the role of journalism, you know, keeping these issues in the spotlight and also really just the curiosity of individual reporters and the support that they can have from their editors and institutions. Because, you know, I think about the work of Unfounded, for example, by Robin Doolittle. And, you know, um, it took her 20 months and it's still ongoing and it's uh, had massive impact. Um, uh, you know, the government cited that work when they, um, with their federal budget, um, earmarking $100 million for a, a five-year strategy on on uh, sexual violence in the criminal justice system. So, you know, I think about how Robin, you know, in a uh, conversation with me kind of explained how it started. And she said that she had been a court reporter for a while but had never heard the term unfounded before. And I think that that was the place where most people were in when her story, you know, landed on the front page when it was first published. I had never heard of the term unfounded before either. And so, you know, how revolutionary it was to teach all of us, like, wow, this is what you are up against when you decide to report uh, via the criminal uh, justice system. 
you know, your first point of contact might be a police officer. And this is this is how it goes. If you've never experienced it, you wouldn't know. Even the people who experienced it didn't necessarily know because they weren't, you know, gotten back to by the um, investigating officer. So uh, I just think about that initial sense of curiosity and then being able to follow through with it and so really, it's a, it's a kind of collective responsibility we all have as journalists, because it's not just one person who can do the work. You know, for example, Robin had a whole team uh, compiling tons of data and then editors who believed in that kind of work, you know, so it can't be a flavor of the month kind of thing to, you know, sell the headlines, etc. There has to be real sustained interest. Mm, and. Yeah, Robin's investigation is such a good example of journalism that's not just reactive or responsive, but just taking initiative and putting the resources into something that people weren't talking about at the time. But Mm -hmm. I mean, that's also a form of journalism that takes a lot of resources that newsrooms might not have. I agree. I mean, I think I mean that it was a fantastic piece of journalism, and it was also a landmark for lots of reasons. As Hannah said, it's you know led to legislative change, which is remarkable. but also, it just showed us, it took us to the very end, going back to the Gomeshi trial, that sort of also exposed just all of the levels um, that are sort of how the chain works. And understanding just the front line in terms of police reporting and attitudes at that level, I think, was revelatory. I mean, it was a really eye-opening experience, I think, for a lot of people. And that's sort of how we have to dig. And it's almost tragic that... You know, most organizations, unfortunately, don't have the financial wherewithal or the commitment to do that kind of journalism anymore, given Mm -hmm. scarcity of resources and, you know, sort of the fact that so much attention is going on the web, whereas that piece required, you know, 24-7 attention for, what, 20 months, was it? Yeah, it was 20 months. But, you know, it's true that not every organization has deep pockets. Um, But you mentioned Gian Gomeshi, and it seems like... uh, as much as we criticize the celebrity aspect of a lot of these stories, it was a really collective kind of journey we all went on. So it's not necessarily that one newsroom deployed many people or many resources. It's that everybody was interested. And I found that I learned so much about that process through, you know, a multitude of reporters from all different um, outlets. So, uh, yeah, it's really too bad that it takes a Harvey Weinstein, for example, or a Kevin Spacey, or, um, you know, in terms of the survivors, you know, like a, an Angelina Jolie and the Rachel McAdams. It, it It is too bad, and I understand that, that it takes uh, those kinds of voices for everybody's interest to finally get focused on these kinds of issues. But on the other hand, when, you know, you have the multiplied power of many different news outlets all focusing on one thing that can be uh you know that is very powerful and can be more powerful than even just one news outlet deciding to to you know have their own agenda setting story Hmm. i mean i want to talk about the shiangameshi case after the weinstein story came out i mean i certainly saw some parallels between uh, Gomeshi and Weinstein, this powerful man in media and who was protected. Uh, Gomeshi was acquitted in trial, um, but the case did lead to a lot of conversations about sexual abuse and harassment. It started the hashtag been raped, never reported movement. There was a lot of talk about believing women. 
I mean, Anne, you, you covered this extensively. Um, what did you think? Did you, do you see any parallels here? I mean, was Gameshi Canada's Weinstein moment in any way? I don't quite see it that way. I think that, yes, as you mentioned, it, it sparked a lot of important conversations and shifted attention on the judicial process, what what women are up against, the nature of um, the you know courtroom tactics, all of that sort of thing. But in terms of Weinstein, I think the fact that uh, you know so many media outlets are just on top of, as you know Hannah was mentioning, the the celebrity aspect of course is galvanizing. But I think you know all respect to the CBC, I think um, that Weinstein is a shaper of. of a not only larger, you know, sort of cultural narratives through pop culture, but also, um, you know, sort of at the apex of this celebrity ecosystem that we've come to absolutely, you know, sort of slavishly follow so that his, you know, and the thing is that people knew this about Weinstein. And just as the same as there were rumors about Gameshi, it's sort of this whisper network worked in both cases. But I don't think I don't think they're equivalent. I don't think we saw the same shift. I think we saw the beginning of a, a conversation with Gomeshi, and I think that his experience, the, that trial was so idiosyncratic for a lot of ways. I think the Weinstein one almost is a clearer narrative um, in terms of what's actually the power imbalances, that sort of thing. Those important understanding of the structural issues, I think Weinstein um, exemplifies that a way more than the Gomeshi trial did. Well, yeah, and I guess the, the trial also put a lot of focus on the women who have to you know, go on the stands mm-hmm. and have their credibility exactly. scrutinized. Yeah, do you think the Gomeshi trial at all did damage to people coming forward to, to talk about sexual assault at all? I, you know, that was sort of a popular narrative that emerged that because, you know, there was such um, the cross-examination during the trial, all in all three cases, there were inconsistencies and... Um, inaccuracies in the way the story had been told that reflect how the system actually works that, you know, we think, well, it wasn't, it just was so muddy and difficult to follow. I, But at the same time, if you actually followed that trial closely, you could see that both the defense and the, um, the Crown were talking about things like, for instance, you know, trauma affecting memory, you know, a lot of different factors were voiced in that that trial in terms of inconsistencies and you you don't have to say everything right the first time but i think that the way it was reported and the sort of absolute kind of these w- women were pilloried in a way as, as well so i don't know i i in terms of we'd have to look at the stats but i don't think the gomeshi trial is illustrative it's illustrative of how hard it is to get an acquittal, but at the same time, there are so many mitigating factors that it was almost, as I mentioned earlier, kind of idiosyncratic for, and because of the celebrity factor, again, Gomeshi being who he was. Yeah. It's interesting now, because we're seeing this, you know, reckoning is the word that you hear a lot, um, and it, it's not happening through the justice system. It's happening through the media or through, you know, the marketplace and the employers, Um I mean, what do you think it says that this movement is happening in this more public realm and not through the courts? That's a great question. Um, I think that, you know, when we think about what's happening right now with um, the Harvey Weinstein story and Me Too, it's right to kind of draw a parallel with the Gian Gomeshi situation, at least for the Canadian public, because there was so much that we learned and there was so much of a collective letdown in terms of um, understanding what a sexual assault survivor goes through with that very imperfect process. And I think that, um, you know, what, 
we're seeing is that law as an institution takes so long to catch up to say science you know we have all this science now about trauma and memory and all that stuff was brought up but um there's just like these kind of warring um elements of you know if 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 judges aren't educated on that kind of thing if there are no precedents set you know I mean I'm no legal expert but what I could see is just how um confusing and how many barriers there are in that system for any regular person who happens to have been assaulted who wants some justice like you know we all felt that level of confusion and why do the outcomes have to be like this when um you know, uh, in in some circumstances, there are, are there's evidence, recorded evidence, for example, you know, video or audio, and I'm you know, so I think that there's a role that media plays because the media we we are people and we're talking to people about what we're all kind of collectively thinking about this and. I don't think that I'm being very articulate about it in the moment, but I'm just, I guess, expressing that kind of a gap between, you know, what we want to see with uh, when it comes to justice and the reality of the way that um, the reporting process is set up in terms of investigation and then also, you know, the, the legal system. And it was really interesting for me to learn um, through a few conversations I had around the After Me Too event, you know, speaking with lawyers um, about how different the civil process is for survivors or people who want to seek some kind of recourse as opposed to the criminal justice system. Um, and, and these are things that, um, you know, I don't know if the general public um, understands the complexity and nuance of law. And I think that we have seen that over and over again with the Gian Gomeshi trial and with the women who are interviewed for Unfounded as well, is that um, people aren't really armed with that knowledge, that legal knowledge, or even they don't even know what their options are before they kind of do the thing they think is right. You know, they think, if I was raped, then, uh, you know, you you go to the police because they're going to make things right. The system is there to make things right, and it doesn't always work out that way. So I think that we're having all of these very confused conversations in the public realm, you know, about, well, what are the ways, like, how can we all, like, together identify the ways in which the system needs to be fixed? I agree. I think I think one thing the media can do is, um, I was just thinking, I followed the, I was at... In, uh, Philadelphia for the Bill Cosby trial earlier this year. And I think that one thing that we can do is sort of articulate some of those issues in terms of the threshold of, of doubt in, in a sexual assault case, you know, where there's no forensic evidence or no video, and it's historical, as the Cosby case was, for instance, the threshold is so high, same with Gomeshi, beyond a reasonable doubt, when it's just a he said, she said. And I think this idea of beyond a reasonable doubt, when I, some, I was talking to a lawyer during the Cosby trial, and he was saying, the general public or the juries aren't well instructed on the fact that it doesn't mean no doubt. And I think that a lot of people, you know, the, uh, in the Cosby trial, it was a hung jury. Some people believed the witness. Others didn't believe the witness. He's going back to trial next year. Um, will what happened with the Weinstein in terms of recognizing that these the velocity of voices are telling the truth in almost all cases, will that affect the trial? I think that it's up to the media to sort of 
clarify some of those issues and just kind of pick it apart, deconstruct it, and explain where the weaknesses in the system are. And yes, the civil courts are a lot easier because the burden of proof is so much lower. And there's a lot of conversation about, should we have sexual assault um, courts, specifically the way we have courts for drugs and other family, you know, is sort of... uh, this is a conversation that can be had in the media in which we articulate and explain how the system works and maybe how it can be improved as well, because right now it is bloody abysmal. Mm-hmm. But I mean, if people aren't, you know, if people are choosing to first go to the media or, you know, to bypass the court system altogether, and and maybe increasingly so with this, with, with the movement we're seeing, what's the, what's the added onus on journalists? I mean, and I know you've talked before about that finding that line between journalism and advocacy, especially around these issues. Well, I mean, journalism isn't advocacy, which isn't to say you don't cover advocacy or give voice to advocacy. Um, but it's a real that's an excellent question. I mean, because people do come forward, they're recognizing that there's a more immediate remedy in the media than there is in the courts. So that really puts a burden on journalists to have a very high threshold. And we have as examples the New York Times, New York Times reporting, the New Yorker reporting. You know, these these are long-term projects. So I think um, it's a it's a tricky one where they start the trial in the media. I don't know what you think about this, Hannah. <laughs> well, it is an excellent question, and I think that um, you know the journalism process in terms of verifying your sources, and uh, you know there are uh, lawyers involved in some of these tricky stories, right? I think that just going through that due process of reporting. Um, is, I think, should be enough to um, make the journalist and that journalist team feel secure that publishing the story is the right thing to do. Because um, it's interesting, though, when you add in the factor of the added onus of, you know, um, individuals feeling like they're not getting uh, justice through other means, you know, the justice system. But I think that You know, I've seen from my colleagues and the people that I work with, uh, there's a lot of sensitivity as to what is going to happen on the other end when somebody does go public with their story. So it's, you know, on top of just verifying your sources and making sure that you have all your um, facts straight, but also understanding how a story can gain its own life after you've published it and, you know, social media and the kinds of things that can get said. I mean... It's kind of hard in this time, technologically speaking, in terms of all the different platforms we have. And I think a real rapid change in our culture of how we communicate to each other, it can be difficult because it's not it's no longer the days of, you know, writing something, having it on a piece of paper in a newspaper and then having people talk about it in their own living rooms. Right. Um, The communication around a story can just grow and take on its own life. So the responsibility there is just something that I think we're grappling with every day. I mean, the abusive comments that can follow a sensitive story um, and that can follow people who are brave enough to speak up, you know, and be your source on a story. um, I think that these are things that we're just like constantly negotiating. I mean, on that point, I think for my the way I operate is I don't think about the comments. I don't read the comments. You know, you just have to, you can't really control, as you say, the way the, you know, the social media or whoever, you know, reacts to a story. So you just have to make sure the story is as credible and as reported and as 
airtight and as credible as you possibly can mm-hmm. and send it. It's like, you know, the child sending it out into the world. And then, you know, at that point, you can't really, you can't really control the way you react. You can't react control. And I agree. So I definitely think that, you know, before you hit publish, you know, all the processes, of course, are exactly as you would do. But um Sometimes, you know, like I have talked about race and um, sometimes you see the comments that are published on your platform and um, I can't let those comments be public. There's just no way. There's a re-traumatizing element to it. There's a amplification of that kind of ugly, you know, whatever it is, racism or sexism or victim blaming that goes on and... Um, you know, as as vile as some of the comments are out there that you see, there are more that you do not see because somebody behind the scenes is saying that is not something that can go out under my brand or publishing platform because it is harmful to the public conversation on this topic. I totally agree that, mm-hmm. you know, that that's up to sort of the yeah webmaster, whoever's controlling that to we should not be espousing hate speech and that's often what these comments amount to unfortunately yeah mm-hmm. there's so much there's so much applause for the people who are coming forward and, and making these allegations publicly but i think there's so many that it can be easy to lose sight of the fact that this is still an incredibly difficult thing to do and that people who do come forward face a lot of backlash still and there's applause for certain kinds of people right mm-hmm. i think that in hollywood there's really applause for these individuals who um don't have as much to lose as maybe an, a more anonymous person, a woman of color, a woman who is in a, um, vulnerable for many different reasons, you know, not in any way to negate the bravery and courage it takes to come forward at all and to decide to take on that spotlight because it's a very harsh spotlight when you're a celebrity. And, you know, I think about Selma Blair and how she talked about how it almost seems silly when you're saying it but she was afraid for her life all those years or she was afraid that you know those threats would somehow come true you know uh, the threats from director James Toback and so I would in no way minimize the level of courage it takes to do that but I think that we are all kind of listening because we're just shocked that the shiny people at the top could be going through this when women and other vulnerable people are going through this all the time. Um, So uh, I I just wanted to mention that not everybody is applauded for coming forward. No, and and you see that now happening as well. And I think that, you know, at bottom bottom line, it's about being a troublemaker. It's about being loud. It's about, um, you know, speaking to authority, which is something difficult at any sort of point in the socioeconomic bracket. But I mean, on that count, just to mention one really important piece of journalism, Mother Jones did a great piece about women working at sort of at low level um, unionization, mobilizing against harassment in the workplace. And that, that to me was a really powerful piece of journalism, because it, it spoke to the fact that it isn't just we need to understand that this movement isn't just the Selma Blairs and the Angelina Jolies, that, that this is work that's been going on for decades and decades. Mm-hmm. I, I missed that story. Um, I'm sorry to say it's I'll have to look it up. A few months ago. It was yeah. terrific. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that ago. you mentioned the unionization element, and I'll have to go back and read that because, you know, women with precarious work are so especially vulnerable mm-hmm. because it's about speaking to that position of mm-hmm. authority. Your livelihood could depend on it. And... Um, 
So that's, you know, I just wanted to point out that's interesting you brought that up. Yeah. And I mean, these stories, you know, the Angelina Jolie story, like these are eyeball grabbers. They're huge stories. Um, But yeah, there are so many stories from people who aren't in these powerful, privileged positions. But how do you make sure that those those stories from, you know, the, the shiny people, as you say, don't suck up all the oxygen? Like, how do you tell, amplify tell, the, tell the other well, the other ones? Yeah. yeah. And I think that I think that we've been trained our whole lives to really uh, identify with those kinds of stars. So beautiful, white, young women, uh, for example. And as the media, in terms of being storytellers, we need to humanize other people who are we're not trained to listen to and to hear, you know. So, um, it, you know, uh, there's been a lot of amazing work done at The Globe uh, regarding uh, vulnerable Indigenous uh, women in terms of, you know, sexual trafficking. And, um, and I just feel that we need to have a deeper emotional connection to a lot of the people that we're um, we're talking about in the news. We shouldn't be talking just about them, but we should be talking to them, and we should in some ways be facilitating the public to be hearing directly from them as best we can because we need to identify with each other and with our, you know, each other's struggles and experiences because our experiences are so different and are really shaped by, you know, race, class, and gender. I was just thinking when you were saying that, that that's exactly the profile of the women who, you know, Harvey Weinstein both preyed upon and sort of um, gave, you know, celebrity uh, cachet to white, beautiful, young women. And mm-hmm. th- those are the women who, you know, we've been trained, as you say, to to pay attention to or to think matter. Mm-hmm. So in a strange way, that paradox helped all of us kind of focus our attention on this issue in this moment, because it all kind of came to a head with Harvey Weinstein. Um but, you know, we've got to dial that out to, you know, statistically speaking, it's Indigenous women in Canada who are most vulnerable to all forms of violence, not just sexual violence. And, you know, we need to tell better stories. And, I, you know, I know we're specifically talking about journalism, but I think about storytelling in, uh, in all its forms, you know, entertainment too. Uh, There's a lot of truth, or we aim for some kinds of human truths in entertainment. Um, You know, I think about children's storybooks, because I read them every day to my kids. And, um, you know, how many stories are just completely invisibilized in terms of, you know, what it means to be a family or to be a human being, you know, um, in children's books and all kinds of stories. So I just, I really think that right now the news has such a tough job to do in terms of informing people about all the stuff that goes on out there that is so negative. It's really difficult to take it in because it can be re-traumatizing, but at the same time, make people want to connect with those stories. That is such a tall order. And I think that in, in ways, we have not been doing it very well. And that's why this whole fake news thing has, you know, kind of cropped up is that people it's almost like we're doing the news job too well. You know, we didn't used to have 24 hours of just like the worst, most shocking, most devastating news from around the world at all times. And now we do. 
Just to add to that, I think what journalists should be doing right now, though, is connecting dots. And I do think that we see, you know, Harvey Weinstein is this, you know, sort of celebrity, glossy, millionaire, blah, blah, etc. But there are connective dots because what we're seeing with Weinstein and the way it's being told, a great piece in The New York Times just the other day about the systems that supported him, the structures that supported him. And I think that this is about structural imbalance. And it's the same structural imbalance that exists, the power in equity that exists in Hollywood, that exists all the way um, into the most um, sort of marginal marginalized communities in our culture and it's exactly the same thing it's played out same template it's just a different landscape so what we as journalists i think should be doing is connecting the dots between explaining how these things exist across the board structurally mm-hmm. so many of the stories that we're talking about and that have come out that have sparked so much conversation have come out of the u.s um, and there have been stories out of Canada as well, but, but it really had, like it started in the U.S. and, and a lot of these powerful figures are, are from the states. Um, back in November, um, Canada Land host Jesse Brown said on his show that while the American press has been investigating all these allegations of sexual misconduct since Weinstein, he said he hasn't seen Canadian news organizations put in that same kind of journalistic muscle into investigating allegations of sexual abuse and harassment. Do you agree with that critique? I don't think Jesse knows what's going on in the newsrooms across the country. I think um, I think that there is truth in the fact that we haven't seen the same explosive um, revelations, which isn't to say they won't come. Um, but definitely, we've they've just trickled out here. Uh, there's not, which is not to say there won't be a greater reckoning. That's all I can say to that. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I I don't think that any journalist faced with a story tip would deny it. I think that there's just, we don't know what everybody is working on right now. And we need whistleblower <laughs> protections if we're going to, it's true. I mean, we, we don't have the same, there are differences between the two cultures in so many ways, but one of them has to do with, they have whistleblower protections, not to say that that protects women coming forward, but there's a, just a different culture um, regarding that type of information exchange. Mm. Why do you think there has been sort of more of a trickling of stories out of Canada as opposed to the U.S. Is it is it a question of size of the country or the prominence of our public figures? Or? You mean sort of why we've seen more in the states? Yeah, I think that yeah, you you hit on a few things, and um, I think that sort of in terms of power matrixes. They exist more. I think that there's greater transparency about a lot of things in the states than there is in Canada. Um, I don't know. That's a few, just a few thoughts. Yeah, I don't know either. I hadn't uh, really thought about it. I think that, you know, the Harvey Weinstein narrative is just such a it's just a, such a huge story, and I think that that kind of like um, pyramid of power. I don't know that that level that those highest heights of power exist here. I mean, we all know that um, our industry is smaller and um, there's just so much more money at play in Hollywood. And I think that that is a huge aspect of the Harvey Weinstein story, Uh, what people will do to keep the machine greased and, you know, printing money. So I, I, yeah, I don't know, but that isn't to say that, you know, we won't be seeing something in the future. And I, I do think that the Gian Gomeshi story was really huge for Canada. And that uh, does predate the Harvey Weinstein story. 
And I mean, in the States as well, we're seeing a lot of high-powered people inside the journalism industry uh, face allegations and lose their job. Matt Lauer, NPR's head of news, Glenn Thrush. Um, but we're not, again, seeing necessarily seeing the same thing in Canada right now. But I mean, you're, you're both women in Canadian journalism. I mean, do, do you think the same problems of harassment and misconduct exist in the Canadian media industry as yes. well? Yes, I, I definitely do. And I think that it's not simply... Um, <laughs> exclusive to media. I think that, I mean, I've, I've dealt with it across my career um, in different industries. So I don't, I think every woman walking the streets can talk, can speak to their own experience. And one of the good things that is happening, and, and maybe this was will also spark changes, that we're having a framework for understanding what is acceptable and unacceptable behavior and seeing the consequences of that behavior. I think for a lot of people, it was just, well, that's what I, you know, that's, the idiots at work, that's what they do. We're, and we're starting to kind of be able to create a vocabulary and also framework for, for kind of understanding what's what's okay and what isn't. Do you still see those problems playing out? In, in Around me and day-to-day? Um, no, I don't see sexual harassment where I work, um, but sexual harassment doesn't occur publicly mm. <laughs> either. Uh, yeah, I think that, you know, Anne spoke to it really well when she said these are, you know, the, the Harvey Weinstein story is the big story. But really, we see these things play out in all industries and in all communities. It's about power and balance, and it's about that abuse of that power. Um, so, of course, it happens in our industry, too. Um, I, I don't really know of any woman, to be quite honest, among my peers colleagues and friends who hasn't experienced something, and I don't necessarily mean at the office or in the workplace, but um, some form of sexual harassment at, at, a mim- at a minimum, you know, we've all kind of experienced it, which I think is what's pretty crazy when you say it out loud, right? And uh, that's the power of this whole moment, I think, is that grappling with those instances is a very isolating kind of experience. And when we talk about it in the media, and there's a power that the media has to kind of legitimize something as a talking point. And so that is, I think, the collective power of, you know, understanding that it is such a universal experience for women um, in particular. And uh, yeah, of of course, it goes on in every industry. Hmm. Do you think our industry is, you know, headed for its own kind of reckoning at all? We're certainly seeing it in the States. I mean, you're talking about here? Mm. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I mean, it is, yeah, it's like, yeah, gendered violence is a norm. Yay. You know, we know that now. Let's move on and uh, and call it out. The Columbia Journalism Review is, is doing a, an interesting survey project to study sort of sexual harassment policies at newsrooms across the states. How do, how do we in the journalism industry, you know, hold ourselves to the same standards that we promote and espouse in the stories that we cover. I mean, especially, you know, this is a difficult issue in the States when we're seeing news organizations having to now report on themselves and their their own colleagues. How are we supposed to hold ourselves to the same standards? Yeah, I don't know. How are we supposed to? I mean, I think it's really hard to ask any organization to, um, I don't want to use the word police, but to kind of regulate themselves, you know, Um you can have great intentions and you can even publicly declare them, which I guess is a step in the right direction. But I don't know how you would get any kind of institutional change um, when there isn't a will. And I'm not saying that there isn't one. 
I think that, you know, recently I've seen a message go out to our newsroom saying that if you see any inappropriate behavior, you should report it. Does that change anything just because we got that message? I mean, not really, because if there are inappropriate things happening and they're not being reported, it's because there's a problem with the reporting process or or that people feel fearful um, in some way about what the repercussions would be. And they don't feel a lot of um, confidence in what any positive out- outcomes might be. But um, I think that there is a greater awareness and it's difficult because no newsroom is like this perfect paragon of behavior, maybe the opposite, right? So um, it, it is really tough because we are people who are used to holding people to very high, high standards and we need to turn them on ourselves. But I think that everybody in society actually is at a moment where we are all being asked to essentially look within, right? Um, yesterday, the After Me Too event, the one of the taglines for it is, you know, we are all accountable. It's true. If we abuse the positions of power that we have, regardless of our gender, and regardless of a sexual element to it, I mean, that's reinforcing the kinds of toxic environments in which in which sexual harassment can flourish, you know, so it, it's really tough to ask people to look within and to see how you're a part of the problem. But you know, maybe a Pollyanna way of looking at it is asking people to see how you are part of the solution. I don't want to like, you know, make fun of that because I, I that is the way that I try and look at things. But the the two things go hand in hand. I'm a little more cynical <laughs> about it. Um, I do think I agree. I mean, um, we should all be reflective about this. But I mean, at the place I work, I work for Rogers, a high profile um, sports announcer, Greg Zahn, was just uh, let go for really inappropriate behavior. Um, and I think that sends a signal. And I think on a corporate level, yeah, these institutions protect themselves a lot of the time. But I think that the dawning of revelation that they are liable in lots of ways in terms of public image, in terms of, you know, possible lawsuits, all of these things are becoming realities that are going to shift behavior. And it's bottom line driven, but so what? Who cares? I mean, so I think there's that there's that and calling it out when you see it, I think is really important and try to be as transparent about the failures within your organization to do that is also part of that, I think, too. Tricky in journalism, too, when increasingly there's so many freelancers working in the industry who aren't sort of part of these structures. and Precisely. And who are often not, you know, they are exploited as well sometimes in terms of the agreements they have with these corporations. Yeah. I know you both have to head out. Um, but just, just before we leave, Hannah, you just spent two days sort of talking about solutions with the Me Too Symposium and, and where we go from here. What are some solutions? Where should we be going from here? Well, some of the recommendations that were put forth specific to the film industry, and I do think that they could, you know, uh, go across the board for all kinds of workplaces. You're talking about establishing an independent body that would basically be responsible for the reporting process and for, you know, uh, whatever um, punitive measures, Um, more flow of information between all the guilds that there isn't the element of having to re-report uh, the same person to many different guilds. Education, because I think a lot of people don't even recognize sexual harassment when they see it. Um, I heard a conversation the other day where a man was saying to his friend at lunch, this wasn't at my workplace, by the way, but um, he said, you can't tell a lady that her shirt is nice. That could be sexual harassment. And I I did I just I had to tune out of listening at that point because I just thought this is not really 
you know, this is the level, I guess, of um, awareness that people have about what should or shouldn't be done with other human beings. So education is really key, too. Yeah, I think I think that's a great point. I think that that's someplace, um, again, media can help, uh, journalism can help. Going back to the Gomeshi trial, um, that was the thing that I found heartbreaking watching and listening to the women give testimony is that, that you know, well, he didn't rape me was sort of this, you know, a repeated point that that's kind of the baseline for seeing what se- we don't understand that the spectrum of, of sexual assault and sexualized violence and also and I sound like a broken drum if anybody who reads me I keep you know the point is it's not about sex it's about power it's about ex- exploiting um, you know the power dynamic we have to understand that we have to have the language to understand what the terminology is but at the same time recognize that this is not Let's not get sucked into power or whether, you know, you know, appreciating a colleague's blouse. If you're in doubt, don't. But, I mean, that's not what this is about. This is about something that's more fundamentally exploitive that we're seeing at every level of society. Yeah, and Anne, thank you so, so much for joining us today. It's thank my you, pleasure. Laura. really been a pleasure talking Thanks. to you. Thank you. That was Anne Kingston, senior writer at McLean's, and Hannah Sung of The Globe and Mail. And you can find more on this topic on the Poll Quotes webpage at rrj.ca. There, you can listen to part of our interview with Lucy Decatere, one of the women who testified against Gian Gomeshi at trial in 2016. And you can hear from Alex Neeson of the Columbia Journalism Review, talking about their survey project looking at sexual harassment policies in U.S. newsrooms. Pull Quotes is a production of the Ryerson Review of Journalism. We're taking a little break for the holidays, but Pull Quotes will be back in the new year. Follow us on Twitter at Ryerson Review to keep up to date with everything the RRJ is doing. And while we're on hiatus, you can always go back and listen to our past episodes on our website, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Pull Quotes is produced by Jacob McNair, Emily Pardo, and me, Laura Howells. Thanks so much to Angela Glover for all her tech help. Our executive producers are Sonia Fata and Stephen Trumper. And our music is Good Evening by Kabu. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. See you in 2018.